the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, alien princess blandishments fall flat on nonplussed astronauts, the travails of returning warriors, plus we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with David Drake this time. Dave discusses a book many consider to be a military science fiction classic. That book is Redliners by David Drake, and now at Booksellers is the 20th anniversary edition of Redliners. It includes a new introduction by Dave and some of the many letters and emails Dave has received from readers over the years, many of whom were deeply affected by reading the book. As a special bonus, also with us on the interview is Bain Publisher and my boss, Tony Weiskopf. This is a good one. It's a Dave Drake rich show, for we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. All coming up. Here's the news. As I've mentioned before, we continue each week at the Bain.com website with our great serialization of Apocalypse, an epic poem by Frederick Turner. I want to commend this to you. It's a good story, and there are some singing turns of phrase in it and some fantastic SF ideas therein. Fred is a nationally renowned poet specializing in traditional forms, and heck, it's a science fiction story told in the tradition of Homer, Virgil, and Milton. Give it a try. Want to also mention that we are rapidly closing in on the deadline to vote for the best story in the year's best military and adventure SF 2015 anthology, our second annual anthology of the best stories of the year in those categories. The anthology is edited by the dowdy David F. Sherrad, and it has some excellent stories in it this time. The author of the story who wins the award will receive a $500 prize and a very nice plaque to reflect him or her holding those $100 bills and smiling. Anyway, this is a great way to give the author of a great story an extra boost. So read the anthology, which is available at print booksellers and in ebook form everywhere, and vote on the best story. The place to find out more is www.bain.com forward slash Year's to Best Award 2015, all one word kind of thing. www.bain.com forward slash Year's to Best Award 2015. I want to welcome David Drake to the podcast. Hi again, Dave. Hi, Tony, and hi, Tony, also in the background. <laughs> yes, also with us this time is Bain Publisher and my boss, Tony Weiskopf. Hi, Tony. Hello, well, David, podcast listeners. Okay, right. here we go. Here we go. Hello, hello, podcast listeners. David Drake is the Ur Bain writer. I think we decided was the appropriate title after I dropped several others on Dave. Along with Jim Bain, he defined much of the tenor of what we do here at Bain Books. Dave is the creator of numerous novels and series, including the best-selling Hammer Slammers military science fiction series, and more recently, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy series. He's the author of many other novels and series. 
Dave is also the author of many fantasy stories and fantasy series, including uh, more recently the Book of Elements series. He's also the co-author on a host of series ranging from the Belisarius novels with Eric Flint to the ongoing Citizen series with John Lambshead and the General series with S.M. Sterling, Eric Flint, and me, Tony Daniel. The latest there would be The Heretic and the Savior by me and Dave. Dave is a graduate of Duke Law School. He's a Vietnam vet where he served in the 11th Cavalry Black Horse Regiment, and he also reads Latin for Pleasure. Now out from Bain at Booksellers Everywhere is a new edition of what many consider a military science fiction classic. That book is Redliners, the 20th Anniversary Edition by David Drake. Dave, you said writing Redliners was cathartic for you in some ways. Did you realize the book was going to have such an effect on so many soldiers, veterans, and others who have been in bad places and, and come back changed by it? Uh, I had no idea that I was going to write the book I was going to write. Uh, I mean, honest to God, I just sat down to write Action Adventure SF, and it... It is that. I mean, there's a lot of action and a lot of... I don't know if you really call it adventure. I mean, getting dragged out of a crocodile's jaws with most of your limbs left. Well, if adventure is bad things happening to other people, then yes, totally adventure. Well, it's in, it's in the tradition of the planet adventure novel, I guess. The really dark kind. Now, I, I, I'm, a little, I'm, I'm curious, I, 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 and I can't remember the origins of this. Was this uh, a book that you had discussed with Jim, or did, oh, no, no. did this uh, just come to you? With uh, Jim's former secretary, Susan Allison. <laughs> Putnam's. <laughs> also known as the publisher of the uh, Ace Science Fiction line. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it, it was one I had... I'd offered her three possibilities, and she picked another one rather than this. Yeah. And so I had it sort of left over, and I thought, you know, that'd, that'd do fine for a, a little adventure story for Jim. Mm -hmm. And Jim really didn't care what I, I sent him. But, but, I mean, it was supposed to be exactly the sort of book that... Um, you know, I normally wrote, and it turned out to be a great deal more than that. And uh, when did you realize that this was going on? Was it during the writing process? No, I finished it, and you know, I finished the I finished the draft, and I sat back and I realized I just felt lighter mm. that I gotten rid of stuff that I've been carrying around for 25 years. And I had no idea. None. You know, I was just writing, I was doing what I always do. I was writing a book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that really points up some of the, the mystery uh, that makes great literature. Um, you know, you've, you, you've been writing books for long time now, long time, yeah. long time, and, and your books are great. And there is, the, the, and yet there is still something magical, uh, about the process. 
um, that makes redliners great in a different way than uh, than the others. Um, and that's it, it's it's the thing that can't be taught at a writer's conference or a workshop or, or, or a science fiction convention panel on writing or or, or even talking about it now. Um, I, I think it's I, I, I don't think analysis uh, lets you put your finger on it. What, what, what do you think, Dave? I didn't know that anything was happening until it was over, and I was about as close to it as you get. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, now, when, when, when we got it, um, I, I, I think it, my, my memory is that we did recognize that this was a novel that you read and went, wow. Um, uh, Jim absolutely did. Yeah. Uh, your reaction was that it was kind of tough. <laughs> uh, you, you had a suggestion that I look away from one of the scenes that I had no intention of looking away from. Yeah. And I was right. Yeah. But but you weren't wrong. I mean, this is a really tough book. I mean, I, I don't want anybody to think that you'll come out of this book feeling good. Although if you've been in some really bad places, you may, and a lot of us have. Yeah. Yeah, and and that was what we were trying to do with the uh, with the additional material um, uh, that we put in the in the back of this one. Um, yeah, Dave, why don't you tell them about what 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 that is? Over the years, I've gotten a lot of notes from veterans, mostly veterans. In one case. It was an amateur fireman who'd been brought down from upstate New York on 9-12, mm. start hauling bodies uh. out of ground zero. And people who'd been bad places, in really bad places, and the book had helped them. And I've I told all of them that it didn't help anybody more than it helped me. Yeah. Uh, I didn't write it for other people. I wasn't even consciously writing it for myself, but yeah. I, I think there was part of me that was really trying to say something to myself. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it wasn't a conscious part. This is... I did not set out to write this book. I set out to write a book that would have a lot of action and excitement in it. And I, I did that. I did that. And, and, and I think that's probably why it works, uh, is that you didn't set out to uh, create something cathartic. Um, you set out to write a work of entertainment that happens to have this deeper uh, consequence to it. Um, but it also has the consequence of entertainment. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, we haven't actually said yet what is in the back, which is, um, which is emails and like nearly 20 or so. 
that people have written to you over the years that are that are really personal, um, really moving um, tributes to the book and to uh, and to you for for writing it. I, I tried to take out when I was editing them uh, any kind of personal um, identifiers uh, so that you, you could get the gist of the comment without um, uh, finding uh, you know f finding the identity of the person who was doing it but that was actually kind of difficult because they were very personal responses to uh, to the work um, but I think as you read them, and there are lots of them, uh, the, you are overwhelmingly aware of how deeply the book affects uh, certain readers. Um, yeah, obviously, you know, no one no one work is going to affect everybody the same way, but certain readers get it and get it very deeply. Some of the most striking ones to me over the years have been the ones who said. My dad came back from Nam, and it was really hard to be around him. And now, all these years later, I've got a notion why. And thanking me for that. Yeah, it's it, it's not just um, uh, service members or, or or but the families um, who are affected by this, and and uh, I think that was really sort of fascinating effect as well. Um, What is it? I mean, uh, while I was reading those letters, um, I was thinking, what it, what is it like to get a letter like that from a from a reader um, when you when you pop it open? Very moving. Very moving. I I think Jesus, I really did do something, but I don't feel that way because I didn't set out to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I can't really take credit for it. <laughs> uh, I'm a good writer, but I was writing way over my head with that one. And you know, I, I knocked it out of the park. <laughs> was it an easy book to write? It wasn't a hard book. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I had the plot. And it was just the way it developed. Yeah, yeah. People tend to think that a plot is more important than it is. Now, you you, you have to have a plot. Yes. <laughs> I, I, no, I've, I've tried to explain that to some people who've had, you know, gotten writing degrees, mm. that plots are not, everything, but they are actually necessary. <laughs> they won't make the book, but they are necessary for a book. So, you know, I had a plot. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not the map. They're, they're, they're the trail through the map. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And, you know, um, I just, I had my, my usual... I think the plot was about 11,000 words long. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, that's usual for me. I, I, I understand that it is usual for you, um, even even skimpy for you. Um, but uh, th this is not true of, of all authors. Just put it that way. Well, this is the way that works for me. Yes. 
um, I, um, I, I packed in a lot of the incident, and the characters sort of grow out of the situation, which they did. Well, can we let's talk about the book a little bit because we've been, I mean, some some of our listeners will have read it and maybe don't remember exactly some of the terms and some will have not read it. The term redliner in the book refers to something like post-traumatic shock stress syndrome, but really in the book, it, it doesn't come off as depression so much as anger, really, at, at least a complete inability to figure out how to be a civilian again. Um, how would you define redliner as it's used in the book? Uh, trust me, anger is the the critical thing <laughs> for post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, I, I've mentioned, I, I remember saying that to a group of people, and I think it was a convention panel or something like that, and a nurse, somebody who'd been an Army nurse, came up to me afterward and said, yeah, you know, you tend to forget the anger, but that's really the core of it all, isn't it? <laughs> and it is. Um, you know, these are people who've been sort of shat on by life and shat on by the brass, and uh, they, they expect to be shat on. Uh, well, the, the 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 term the redliners uh, far predates uh, yeah. post traumatic stress syndrome. We, we we got it from a Kipling poem, as I recall. Uh, actually, no. Uh, this is the automotive version. What happens when you over rev an engine? Well, red redliner, yes, but 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 the but the title. Yeah, uh, inspiration was was Kipling. Yes, the thin red line. I believe you used that as your epigraph. Yes, the... uh, thin red line of heroes when the drums begin to roll. Yeah, uh, the the British in the late eighteenth century switched um, early eighteenth century switched to an iron ramrod, and that permitted them to load much more quickly than was possible with a wooden ramrod, mm. with proper training. And so they went from a four-rank line. Remember, you had units marching up to one another and uh, in line facing and shooting at each other. Uh, the British switched from a four-rank line to a two-rank line because their troops were firing faster. Hmm. And that's where the, the concept of the thin red line, because the, you know, red, because they were wearing red uniforms. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> and uh, it, it became the... Uh, the newspaper uh, term for the this thin red line between us and barbarism, you know, uh, it, it's it's sort of a bullshit term. In when when you hear 
soldiers using it, it's sort of a bullshit term. You know, this is a press term. But it, it's a critical press term. <laughs> Well, I, I think Kipling was understood the irony of it. Oh yeah, he he absolutely did get the irony of it. You know, that's the whole point of Tommy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have, have have we done Tommy in our uh, our poetry readings? Um, I haven't. I did um, Birds of Prey actually. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think anybody's taken that one yet. I think we might have to do Tommy soon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and of course I've I've done Marshall. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Want it? So, well, uh, we so let's talk about the book some more. The basically you set up, um, you, you give an example of um, what what it's a company, the C forty one company. Of strikers who are, they they make planet fall. So I guess they're planet they're, they're paratroopers. Yeah. Um, the C forty one makes a planet fall on the planet Maxis three seventy seven in in the opening chapter. And um, one of the compelling things about this battle chapter is how you get a sense of the complete mayhem and the confusion and the shock of the explosions and gunfire all around. It really got to be sort of a a litany of one thing you know, it's just, it just uh, really is affecting how does um how does one remain effective in a situation like that what do the soldiers do training you you do what you've trained for you do the thing you've done before and you don't think about it you just do it and you know in the one case the uh the guy clears a room and it's only after the grenade's gone off that he realizes the room was full of women and children. Yeah, this was Blom, right? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we later learned his name is Caius. Yeah. Um, and this, I mean, this is sort of the the emblematic episode of of the book, because um, Blom is the one that really goes through the the biggest um, change, and he becomes an asset because of it, even it, even though it really. He's crazy, yes. <laughs> well, sometimes crazy people are useful. So, all right, we cut away to the battle, to, from the battle to this very sterile and logic-driven office place where um, Humanity's Unity Government, the chief administrator, John Smith, um, is. And he's a level four. Um, so what, what's the political situation? Who are we at war with? Who's humanity, humanity at war with? And, and why does this guy wield so much power uh he is the civil head of government and it's a very large polity and he has autocratic power and he's he is a cyborg he is human but there is also a computer interface that gives him enormous capacity, and he has, in human terms, a universal power. And humanity is at war with another race, which is physically different, but not that different, and uh, which doesn't have the concept of 
equality. Uh, they can be masters and you can be slaves, or they can accept the other alternative. Uh, they will be good slaves, but they've got to be beaten first. And um, so the administrator is focused completely on beating them. And that means that you use whatever tools there are, sometimes, which includes human beings. Sometimes the universe does not let you uh, set the terms of the argument. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the administrator is absolutely the most ruthless character in the book and that's not saying <laughs> that the the strikers of the you know company C41 are gentle they're they're not they'll do whatever's necessary but the intellectual ruthlessness involved in the whole situation is that of the administrator. Mm -hmm. What he's he is human in that he has a moral problem to solve here. Yes. Um, what is this problem as the chief administrator sees it? Uh, the problem is that these tools, these human tools, whom he has been using, uh, some of them are broken. And, you know, the whole company C-41 is broken after this final operation that was a complete screw-up. Not anybody's fault, just chance, but it, it's a complete screw-up. They're horribly battered, and the survivors are really aren't safe. You can't use them, and you can't turn him into society. And he considers it his duty to, if possible, reintegrate what's left into society. And he sets out doing that just as ruthlessly as he has been carrying out the war. And, um, and the solution he comes up with, or at least that we at first think he comes up with, is to send them to an incredibly hostile planet to protect some colonists. Uh, yes. Uh, worse, the, the colonists aren't really, they didn't intend to be colonists. <laughs> uh, they're, uh, they were perfectly standard apartment block, which was gathered up and told you're going to become colonists on in a hostile environment with these strikers as your, your security element. The idea being that they would see what it was really like and that the strikers would also understand that they were appreciated and 
you know, this this is a the sort of thing that only a totally autocratic yeah. government. Well, he is he the chief administrator. We know from the start that these people are there for C forty one company C forty one. Um, as uh, they're not the, the, the company is not really there to protect them. They are there to protect them, but the whole point of the exercise is to try to, um, try to solve this dilemma of what you do with, um, with these wounded warriors. Yeah. These burned out. And of course it goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, if you've ever been in the military, you're familiar with that one. <laughs> Well, I think in, in, I was going to say any large endeavor, but really just any human endeavor, you know, there's stuff happens. Yeah, yeah it really <laughs> does. And, and in this case, it happens really, really badly. And, you know, and I, I think that's you know, that, that's part of the fun of uh, uh, of your novels um, is, is that it takes the universe as as it is, not as the uh, the kindly author wishes it would be to make his plot work. <laughs> <laughs> no, th this is this is not a kindly universe by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. Well, describe. I mean, the planet Byzant, where they're um, sent, is—it's uh, quite a place. <laughs> if there were ever a place that was a supremely hostile environment, this is it, right? Well, you—I mean, you know—you're a big fan of vegetation, right, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that—that that comes through. It—it it can be hinted at in some of my earlier things like oh the jungle yes for example but no this this is where where i tell the truth about <laughs> your yard <laughs> do you really think trees are evil dave <laughs> not after they've been mown down <laughs> yeah i i've had people who uh who use that background in role-playing games <laughs> is that, you know, nobody lasted more than a couple of minutes. <laughs> Where did you come up with that? <laughs> well, I do a lot of yard work. <laughs> Looking out my window. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, in fact, I work outdoors, so <laughs> this is my life. So you're surrounded by... Well, well, there. So there's like literally not one thing on Bazant that doesn't want to kill you. Um, it maybe it seems a little bit, a tiny bit, that um, you're taking a little bit of authorial perverse glee and putting them through this hell. It's like one thing. You the next thing that uh, happens is even worse than the last. Yeah, um, I I did try and keep buildings the. Uh... The suspense. I mean, one's supposed to do that, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just. Um, <laughs> and if and if the Thinking author of, happens yeah. to take pleasure in this, then the, you know that's that that's fine too. It's an un uh -huh. unintended bonus. <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> well, these are. I mean, it's these are not nice trees. Um, so, Major Arthur Farrell. Also is in command of C-41, 
and he's one of the main characters in Redliner. He's, a, I thought he might be um, something like an authorial stand-in, although not exactly the same, of course. He's a very intelligent man, but his intelligence and understanding of what's happening, it hasn't really exempted him from redlining himself, right? Oh, no. He, he sees it. Yeah, all, all those people lost in the that initial... This was a case, and, and I'm, I'm ple- I made the conscious decision. I did not tell the reader that the company of strikers is burned out. I showed them being burned out. So, and and this is the guy who's in charge of them all, and was in charge of them uh, in in the rat fuck where so many of them got killed. You know, his people. He put them there. And they're dead, and some of them are dead and smeared all over him. And yeah, he's very definitely burned out. Well, that's one of the I I shouldn't have skipped that section. There is a section after the the first initial drop where they come back and they are sort of out of control in a even a, a controlled fashion. Yeah, and we see what it means that they're burnt out, like you say. Yeah, uh, and, and by the way, that's quite real. Uh, that's a scene that uh, I not only knew of cases myself, but um, I had other people say, oh, yeah, <laughs> I remember when, you know, the Manchus uh, landed in Yokosuka coming back from Korea. <laughs> I, I, I mean... There, as a matter of fact, uh, Gene Wolfe has a story a bit like that mm-hmm. in his letters to, from letters to mom, the letters he wrote back from Korea. Uh, people tend to forget that Gene Wolfe was a combat infantryman in action. Yeah, and uh, you know it's not the way people think of Gene, but it's very much what Gene is. And, uh, but yeah, that, that is a completely real section that any veteran is, oh yeah. So, um, but yeah, that, that was the point. Uh, make it clear to people, to readers, uh, precisely what the problem is. And, um, I, I think I did that. I am proud of the way I did that. Put it that way. That, that, that's something that I've been trying to stress in my uh, when I do talk to, to writers at workshops and panels. Um, identify the problem. Identify it early, and uh, make it clear to the reader. Yeah. So. It's always seemed to me that the best way to learn to write was to read good people. Yeah. Oh, I, I entirely agree. Yeah. And uh, not worry about how you, you think and how you feel. Uh, nobody cares how you feel. Nobody cares what you think. You're 22 years old. Why would anyone care? <laughs> That's me. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Wait. Oh. That's life. <laughs> well, 
what tell us a little bit more about Blom because he's a wonderful character. I mean, he's not a wonderful person, but um, the the way that he he's one of them that that he did go crazy in a manner of speaking, but it, but he, he became sort of I don't know holy in that he could sort of read what was what was happening. He could anticipate what this horrible planet was going to throw at them next. Yeah, uh, he, he really was, he was a scout. He was probably over the line to begin with. And he simply blended in. This was actually an environment he could deal with because he played by the same rule book. And, you know, there was no question about what's fair or any of this sort of thing. It's just, okay, these are the rules, and I'll play by the rules. So, so he got along fine in the environment because he understood it. And it was an inhuman environment. He wasn't really human by then, either. And by the end, he's really around the twist. But not in a bad way, particularly. Well, you know, it, it, is, is it crazy if you're functioning? That's, you know, that's the question. I mean, you're, you're, you're as crazy as you need to be to, to, make it, to make it through. How you engage reality is entirely optional. Um, so, long as, so long as duty and honor are satisfied. Yeah. Not that he thinks in terms of either of those things. No, no. A any more than the trees do. Right. Well, Blom is the one that, that shot the um, the alien children, Kalindru children, um, by accident. But it stick. I mean, that's really what set him set him off here. Um, and he befriends a human uh, girl who's one of the colonists. Um. Can you t talk a little bit about that relationship? And, and I mean, he's, is this a, I mean, is, is it because this is the only level he's really able to relate to on a childlike level? Um, he was an orphan. He was raised as an orphan. He never had much engagement with the world. Uh, he winds up being the protector of a little girl who was coddled up to the point her parents were horribly killed in front of her. And he is completely aware of what it's like to be suddenly alone and have no friends, no allies. And he identifies with her. And she, to an adequate degree, identifies with him. It, it, it's a problem he can solve. Yeah. Yeah. Just not, not because, simply because he could do it. Yeah. Well, and... 
everybody else in the unit is more than a little worried about Blom and being around him because he is crazy and he, he clearly is operating on a different reality than anybody else's and that's extremely handy to have around but it also means you can't predict what he's going to do and he is extremely dangerous he wouldn't be any good if he weren't hmm. can you go into some more just a little bit of detail about what this planet is like what some of the menaces are because they're ingenious <laughs> diabolical even <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you you sort of assume that if it's green it's got it in for you and if it's black, it's probably attached to something green, and it has it in for you. <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if you just operate on the uh, the assumption that we're going to cut our way through this. Did, did, did you get help uh, des designing your botany, or did you do that all yourself? Oh, I did that all myself. Uh, yeah, th this is before... Uh, you know, I've become good friends with John Lambshead, who's uh, a top-end zoologist, biologist. Uh, but no, this this was all my. Uh, you know, I met John after I'd written Redliners. Mm -hmm. uh, he's quite impressed by the book, but he says it's not one he ever wants to read again. And I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, this, like I, I say, this is a tough book. So, so the inspiration for the botany came from from what what what, what sources? Well, <laughs> me in my backyard. <laughs> so the, the I, honest to God. <laughs> so this is basically North Carolina planet. <laughs> well. <laughs> If the trees reached out. It was very similar. And shot back at you if you shoot at them. Uh, or, or for that matter, shoot at you before you shoot at yeah. them. If you've ever stepped on a sweet gum nugget, then That's yeah. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I did have a giant hostile sweet gum in there, I do recall. Yeah. And it, the thing is, is that a lot of your vegetation doesn't, it's not trying to predate, it's not trying to get nourishment from those that attacks it's just kind of mean yeah it's trying to kill you yeah. and um, uh, there there is a point to this in the book which I will not discuss yeah it's the book's got a really great um, a great finale as well which we we shouldn't talk about but it, it actually does we are moving in a particular direction and uh, and we get there, <laughs> and, and and some of those getting there are still alive, and and many, fewer, but many are still sane. Um, I I have some good scenes in that book. Um, I I do good action, but this is much more than action, and. I did, 
as a general rule, I don't pull back from showing what things actually look like. But in this one, uh, it was more direct than uh, even is the norm for me. It's just it's just a tight um, tight story, and everything works together um, in an organic way with this book. It's just uh, everything. It's like you're firing on all cylinders with this one, wouldn't you say? That was right way over my head. <laughs> Look, I'm good, but people have said, oh, why don't you write another one? Hell, I couldn't have written that one if I tried. <laughs> and it's not long either. How many pages is it, Tony? It's a, just an average-sized book. It's probably uh, 90,000. Yeah. No, I think it's 105. 105, yeah. Yeah, yeah but but I, I write very dense prose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think any longer it would have been too much. Any shorter it wouldn't have been enough. I, I was trying to make people understand something. I was trying to show people something, and... You, you have to have the whole thing in front for, for people to understand. And the veterans already did. You know, the, the veterans did. It's the stuff that I've gotten from some civilians who understood or who, you know, suddenly, no wonder Dad was like that. Yeah. Yeah, and there's several of those responses in the back to this one. Yeah, yeah. And but I didn't write it for that. I I wrote it to fill a slot for Bain books. Yes. <laughs> and and it did. And uh, Jim was remarkably taken by it. Um. And look, Jim and I were friends, uh, but we didn't bullshit each other about <laughs> writing or much of anything else comes to that. And this really impressed him. He tried very hard to make a commercial success out of it, and it wasn't. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, it wasn't. It's It keeps on selling. Yes, I, I I call that a commercial success, Dave. <laughs> uh, after twenty years, that's a commercial success. <laughs> but you know, the initial um, initial hardcover release did not have a high sell through. Uh, it made its nut in the paperback, and has continued to grind ahead hmm. and. This is the one thing I've written that's more than just a book. I've written a lot of books, and some of them quite good. Uh, this one is more than just that, and I'm very proud of it, but I can't really claim much for it because I wasn't conscious of what I was doing. I, I knew what I had when I finished, but I didn't at any step of the way, and I certainly didn't in the planning. And 
strangest experience I've had in writing, and I've been writing for a long time. Um, well, that's um, that sounds like a good place to leave it. Is there anything else we might want to cover regarding the book? Um, if you know somebody who's come back from a deployment and is having problems or he realizes having problems from things that happened to him 30 years ago, uh, pick up a copy and give it to him. I say him because it's mostly he, but not anymore. Uh, it, I'm not telling people that everybody ought to read it, but I will say that people who are having PTSD problems, I think, are universally better for having read it. Just because it says you're not alone, I mean, that's the main thing. The way you're feeling is it's familiar to a lot of us for our sins. And people feel very, very much alone, and God knows I did. And, and that's why we put the appreciations in the back. I thought that was very clever of you. Um, well, credit where credit is due. This goes to, uh, it was Mark Van Name's idea. Um, and his... oh, he, I will, occasionally I would get something that just struck me so hard that I would forward it to Mark and my wife, Joe. Yeah. And um, I tell you, I hadn't really thought about that until my webmaster gathered up the you know whole batch over however many years I've had a website. Mm -hmm. And I, I started reading the compilation. I thought, my God, I really did do something there. Yep. Uh, didn't mean to. I mean, I'm delighted I did, but didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're delighted you did as well. The book is Redliners, the 20th Anniversary Edition by David Drake. It's now out at booksellers everywhere. Dave, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you, Tony, and thank you, Tony, and thank you, Bain audience. Bye-bye. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy? The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore.
Wochins tilted one of the bank of windows on the outer wall of the fifth-floor office so that she could see the shipyard's pool without looking through glass. Grimy glass, Daniel noticed. He suspected that Mon spent as little time as possible in this office, even when he hadn't lent it to Daniel and his bosun to put together a crew list. For riggers, I'll just see who hasn't shipped out since the sissy landed, Wochin said, rubbing her big knuckles together. She was six feet six inches tall, rangy and stronger than any man of her size whom Daniel had met. We'll have our pick. Wochins was also as ugly as a weathered fence post. She and the riggers which she as bosun commanded worked in suits stiffened with fiberglass armor, hard suits, to protect them from the punctures otherwise certain when they were moving quickly among the raw edges and broken wires of a starship's rigging. Rigging suits were a better alternative than watching your air supply vanish into the matrix. But on the inside, they pinched and rubbed the wearer's every protecting body part from the forehead to the toes. Wochen's skin was worn into calluses on cheeks, knuckles, and doubtless many of the places which her clothes covered. While that didn't greatly contract from the bosun's appearance, it certainly didn't help. I'm only offering standard wages, you know, Daniel said doubtfully. Spacers weren't in desperately short supply as they had been for decades while the fleets of Cinnabar and the Alliance battled across the length and breadth of the human universe. Still, every member of the Sissy's crew was exceptionally skilled. They wouldn't have any difficulty finding berths. And I don't want you telling them that they'll have shares in a treasure, he added. Though they would, of course, if there were a treasure. Cleveland believes the treasure exists, and maybe his mother does. Mothers being as they are, but I don't. I'm going to babysit the boy as a favor to a friend, and a friend of Adele's, Lady Mundy's. I guess any of those things would be reason enough, Wochin said, returning to the console where Daniel sat. A friend of yours, or the mistress, I mean? I don't care what you say. If the people who've sailed with you in the past hear that you're going to look for a treasure, they'll be sure they're going to find one, no matter how you warn them. Daniel sucked in his lips and nodded agreement. I know, he said, but they're wrong. Well, they're all adults, he grinned. As much as I am, anyway. And I guess telling the sissies that we're going into a war zone and it'll be dangerous wouldn't put any of them off either. He felt his muscles tighten. By hell and all its demons, we've been through some hard places together, he said. I'll tell the world we have. And that was the key. Been through. The surviving sissies believed that because of what they'd survived in the past, they didn't need to fear anything that might happen in the future. That was nonsense. Logically, they knew how many of their former shipmates had been killed or maimed during the years they had sailed under Daniel Leary, under Six, his communications identifier. But superstition has a bigger part than logic in the way spacers view their world, and Daniel, a spacer to the marrow of his bones, felt the same childish confidence. That leaves us the ship side, Daniel said. He brought up that portion of the crew list of the Princess Cecile at the moment she landed on Cinnabar after the recent operations in the Makata region. Daniel had wondered whether the Bergen & Associates office would have a decent computer. In fact, it had a console salvaged from the Milton, similar to the one on the Quiche's bridge. As he rode up the elevator to this top floor, he had noticed the bracing Mon had added to the building. When he saw the massive console, he understood why. 
The bosun as chief of rig was responsible for all the personnel whose duties were on the exterior of the hull during operations. Wochins knew the riggers personally, their strengths and weaknesses. The ship's internal workings were the province of technicians under the chief engineer, the chief of ship. The captain and bosun knew the technicians by sight, but they didn't have the intimate knowledge of them that Pasternak had. He had been chief engineer on the Milton and since then on the Princess Cecile, though a corvette was far smaller than the normal berth of so senior an engineer. Can Pasternak help us? Wochin said. I figure we only need two, three techs on a ship this size, right? I intend to sign on four, Daniel said firmly. Every spacer on the ship's side was one fewer under Wochins. And any academy graduate will be able to turn a hand to the fusion bottle. We'll have several officers besides me. He stretched at the console. I'm hoping to get a response from Pasternak today with his recommendations, he said. To tell the truth, I was hoping to hear something yesterday, but I don't know how well Pasternak keeps up with message traffic when he's relaxing at home. I gather he's something of a celebrity in Wasail County, where he comes from. Master! Somebody bawled in the yard outside. Daniel and Wochins both went to the windows and looked out, moving faster than a civilian would have believed possible. Hogg stood on the drive which circled the pool. He hadn't bothered to look for a loud hailer, let alone a wired link to the office console, but he cupped his hands into a megaphone. Pasternak's here, Hogg bellowed. I sent him up to you. Right, Daniel said. He waved in case Hogg couldn't understand the reply, since he wasn't sure his lungs were as good as those of his servant. To Wochins, he added. Well, I guess that explains why I haven't heard from the chief sooner. She laughed. In Wasail County, he probably had to take an ox car to the nearest tram station, she said. Daniel smiled as the elevator out in the hallway whined to a halt. That was an exaggeration, but Wasail County certainly wasn't known as a technological hub. Good to see you, chief. Daniel called to the spare, slightly stooped man of 60 who got off the elevator. His hairline was moving back. But you didn't have to come here, you know. I just needed recommendations for the power room crew of a tramp. Your message came, and I got here as quick as I could make it, Pasternak said. The engineer looked more agitated than Daniel had seen him since the time they were outside the ship and under small arms fire. I left my duffel bag down with Shorty Graves at the gate. I knew him since he was a wiper, before he lost his legs, I mean. Chief, said Daniel, all I expect from you is recommendations. This isn't the sissy, it's a tramp that'll be crammed to the gills with a crew of twenty. And, uh, we're heading for a mining world where there's a war going on. On the ground, I mean, where we'll be. Well, I've got a recommendation, Pasternak said, suddenly forceful. Me. And don't tell me it's just a small plant. They can be trickier than a battleship installation. I've run both and I know. He paused to lick his lips. While Daniel was still deciding how to reply, Pasternak resumed. If you're short of crew, I can run the plant myself. That's all a tramp usually has. And there's nobody you'll find who'll do as good a job as me. I know that, Chief, Daniel said. I plan to assign four to the power room. Right, that's plenty, Pasternak said, nodding. He looked at the bosun and said, And Wojins? I'll make sure that a couple of them have ringing experience so they can double in brass if they have to. You're signing Sun, right? I'd want him even if you didn't need a gunner. I've talked to Sun, yes, Daniel said. Uh, Chief? 
and I'm surprised that you're so determined to ship on a voyage which I expect to be both unpleasant and unprofitable. And you'll have me, Pasternak said with a sigh of relief. Thank the blessed heavens. Daniel smoothed what would otherwise have become a frown. He most certainly had not given the chief a slot, though he knew he was going to. Sir, you don't know what it's like at home, Pasternak said. My wife, she figures she's the squire's wife now, so she wants me to stay home and play the squire, you know. And I'm not the bloody squire, I'm the third son of the mechanic on the squire's estate. And Emily can't see that. She thinks it's enough to own the estate myself now, which I do, and have more money than anybody else in Wasail County, which I do too, not that that's saying much. He took a deep breath and then another. Daniel had seen Pasternak running repair operations on ships that had been battered by plasma bolts or, in the case of the Milton, had lost 50 feet of hull to a missile. The chief had been fiercely decisive, and he hadn't shown either worry or relief. I can't say I want to ship out and not have Emily and the boys shouting so loud you could hear them in Zenos, Pasternak said. But I tell them Six needs me, and there's not a word from any of them. The squire is off to do his duty, you see. That's what a gentleman does. He smiled raggedly. Well, that's what Ivan Pasternak does too, he said. Only I'm no bloody gentleman. Daniel stepped forward and clasped hands with the engineer. You'll do for me, chief, he said. Round up the rest of your team and report back here soonest. I'll want your report on the plant. Not that I don't trust Mon's people. Pasternak strode back to the elevator. The smile on his face could have lighted a stadium. The door closed behind him and the cage started down. Daniel grimaced. He turned to Wochins and said, Look, I know that for a job like this, you'd expect a younger engineer who didn't mind mixing it up if things got rough. But demons take me if I could turn down the chief when he begged me. Wochin shrugged. It'll be a cold day in hell that you hear me say that my riggers need help from the shipside in a dust-up, she said. And so far as that goes, I figure Pasternak will bring Evans, and he's worth two in a fight anyway. She grinned. It made her look even uglier than usual. That's mainly because you can't hurt Evans by hitting him in the head, Wochin said. But with you and Mistress Monday aboard, nobody else needs to think, right? Daniel seated himself again. I don't know that I'd go that far, he said. But so long as you're satisfied, I suppose it's all right. Six, said Wochins. I've never served with a better engineer than the chief there. But as for what makes me satisfied, you making the decision satisfies me. It sure worked so far. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf for help on the interview. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the screeching of five million barn owls put through an auto-tuner to sing out Ina Kleine Nacht music and Bach's fugue in D minor simultaneously plus fireworks of thanks and praise for David Drake, author of Redliners, the 20th anniversary edition. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>